Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, that you continue to speak to us through your word. Thank you that your word is powerful, sharp, divides soul and spirit. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in that way now as we come to your word. You'd make it clear what you're saying to us this morning, that whatever is in our hearts or minds this morning that may hinder us from hearing your word, that you would that you would remove that or quell that, help us to rest in you and trust you as we hear your word. Father, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. So in preparing for this message, I've been thinking a lot about a movie. It's a, it's a true story, but I watched the movie fairly recently. The movie's called I Am Not Ashamed. It's about um, a teenage girl, Rachel Joy Scott, who attended Columbine High School, the school where one of the very first big school shootings happened. And this is a true story. They wrote the movie based on some of her journals and firsthand accounts, but um, in the movie, anyways, as she, she's sitting outside the school talking to one of her friends as the shooters come up, and the shooters start shooting, and they kill her friend immediately and severely wound her. And as they walk up to her, she was known as being a Christian in the school, and as they walk up to her, they start mocking her faith, saying, Where's your God now? What would Jesus do right now? As she's dying... And then they come up, and the one shooter puts a gun up to her head and says, Do you still believe in your God now? And she looks him in the eye and says, You know I do. And then he shoots her. And we watch those moments, and it's hard to even put ourselves in, in that situation. I, I find myself thinking, you know, what, would I, what would I do in that moment? There's a big part of me that hopes I would respond like that with this courage in that moment and says, you, you know I do. And yet there's still a part of me that wonders whether, whether I would actually have that courage in that moment. It always makes me wonder, what, what causes someone to have that type of resolve in that moment? With the gun to your head, um, wounded and dying, and to look them in the eye and say, yeah, you know I believe. But even if we take it down, say we ratchet, I mean, that's a really severe case. What if we ratchet it down um, and start thinking about our jobs and you put yourself in a situation where you're, you're, have make, it's a hard, you're, you're having a hard time paying the bills, you're going paycheck to paycheck, but it's still not enough, you're struggling to make ends meet, you're struggling to take care of your family, and you show up to work one day and your boss says, if you want to keep working here, you need to... Renounce your faith. Renounce that you believe in Jesus. Now, most people wouldn't actually be that blunt. Usually it would be you show up at work and they say, in order for you to keep working here, you need to live in a way as if you rejected your faith. What, what do you do in that moment? Or in order for you to keep working here, you need to affirm things that you need to affirm. And if, for you to affirm them would mean you don't really believe in Jesus. Where, where do we find the resolve in those situations when we know everything's on the line? 
Um, the story we're looking at is of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so I don't have to say those three names over and over. I'll just call them the three throughout the sermon because it's a lot easier to say than their three names. Um, but they're put in a situation where their resolve is tested. And the question is, is where did their resolve come from? So we're going to read the whole chapter this week. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 90 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So... The satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, You must fall down and worship the image of gold that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time... Some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought to the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I just always laugh when Nebuchadnezzar is like, all right, this is the God, and anybody who doesn't worship him, we're going to cut him up into pieces. Man, you just don't get it. (laughs) Eventually he gets it. God humbles him and eventually he gets it. But it takes him a long time. But I want to make sure, and I mentioned this with the kids, don't don't miss the connection between chapter 3 of Daniel and chapter 2 of Daniel. Remember, last chapter, the whole thing was focused around this image. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of an image, of a statue that shook him to his core. And when Daniel interpreted it, he said, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Now, just a few verses later, King Nebuchadnezzar is making his own image, and the whole thing is gold. Because he doesn't want to just be the, the head. He wants to be the whole enchilada. He said, I'm not happy with just being the head of gold. I'm the whole thing. I am a big deal. And I'm going to make this image and I'm going to set it where all these people can see and they're all going to fall down and worship because I am that big of a deal. And again, you should, it should have these, um, we should be remembering Genesis 11 where the Tower of Babel was, was built to make a name for themselves in opposition to God. And now in the same exact place, King Nebuchadnezzar is making a great, tall statue to make a name for himself and thumbing his nose at God. And then he he takes this huge group of people and all these instruments and has them come in for this big ordeal to worship the statue. 
And, and you could, I don't know, maybe you could hear my voice, but it gets kind of tedious reading through this eventually. The author did that on purpose. He, he, he gives these long lists of the satraps and the governors and the prefects and, because he's, he's mocking the whole deal. The author's writing this saying, the king is making this huge to-do. He's bringing all of these people in. and He's having all of these instruments, the lyre and the harp. And, the, and he just keeps saying this over and over and over again, mocking that the king is putting this huge shindig together to worship an image that he built. The king built it, and now they're all going to worship it. And he has this huge, big deal about it. And, and not only that, that the foolishness of all of that, the foolishness is even escalated when the king says, if you don't worship it, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. So, so everyone does what they're supposed to do, right? Well, except for a few, right? We'll get to that point. But, but the text says everyone fell down and did it. And again, the author kind of mocks them as being robots and puppets of the king. The NIV translates it, says, as soon as they heard the sound of all of the instruments, all of the people and blah, 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 the list of them, fell down and worshipped the image of gold. But, but in the Hebrew, I really love it because in the Hebrew it says, as they were hearing, they were falling. Like the moment that they heard the noise, they were down. They were like, we're not getting thrown into the furnace. We're going to listen to the king. Whatever the king does, as soon as I hear this, I'm going to fall. And, and the image is like, like trained dogs. Like I used to train hunting dogs with a whistle. And you trained it. As soon as they heard the whistle, they would sit or they would come or they would do whatever. They would go right or left. And he's portraying all of the people of this whole country to be that way. The king has trained them that as soon as they hear this, they hit the ground in obedience to it. They were robots and and puppets. Their, Their opinion didn't matter. That was just how the king wanted it to be. Except for three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And some of the astrologers approach the king with this complaint, and they say, there's some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Which in reality is a pretty trumped-up charge. I mean, part of it's true. They're refusing to worship their gods or their image, But these guys say, they don't care about you, king. They pay no attention to you. They're just doing their own thing, which is a lie. They've been ruling over provinces of Babylon for a long time. And as far as we could tell, they were doing a good job. The king was happy with it. But these guys are, I think, the text doesn't quite say it, but I think they're jealous. These three foreigners have been promoted to the highest places in the land. And they want them gone. They want them thrown into the... Furnace, And so they take this one little thing and they say, King, they don't worship your gods, your images. They don't even care about you, King. Do something about it. Throw them in the furnace. And it works. The king, the king in his typical fashion, flips a lid. A furious rage. He blows up and says, get these guys over here. I'm going to have a word with them. So he brings them into his presence. But then he tries to calm himself and pretend like he's not so bad. and says, all right, I'm going to give you another chance. I know you probably didn't mean to not worship my God. So if you come in and if you do it, it'll all be good. But if you don't, um, you're going to be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And he says, then what God will be able to rescue you out of my hand? And I always think, 
you know, I don't know if Daniel wrote this or whoever was writing this book, but they had to giggle when they wrote that line. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's pride is like, then which God's going to rescue you from my hand? And they're like, just wait. We know the story, right? In your pride, he thinks he is this big deal, right? He's the statue of gold. Who, who's better than me? And the author knows that their God is better than him, much more powerful. And so they respond with this boldness. They're standing in front of the most powerful man on the earth. And they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. I mean, they're not saying we don't have to defend ourselves. They're like, King, we're not even going to talk about it. This, is, this isn't a talking matter. You can throw your power around. You can try to intimidate us. It's not changing reality. We're not worshiping false gods. This is not, this is not our deal. We, we know who our God is. We trust Him. We're following Him. We're not even going to talk to you about it. I mean, there's, there's that resolve, right? I just think there's that resolve that just sits there. It's like, we're not even going to have the conversation. There's, there's no wavering. And the question is, where does that resolve come from? And I think it comes from the rest of what they have to say. Say, King, we're not even going to talk about it because we know if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. See, that resolve comes from this knowledge that's been throughout all of Daniel that God is in control. And he's fully capable of delivering them from the king's hand. The king may think he's a big deal. They don't care. They know that God is a much bigger deal. And whatever the king tries to do, he can't do it apart from the Father's will. They know that. Anything that the king is or has been given has all come from the Father anyways. And God's fully capable of delivering. He chucks them in the flame. They said, God can save us. We know it. But they say more than that. They say, even if he doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to worship your gods. See, they know that God's in control and they know that God works in these mysterious ways. He might save them from the fire. He's fully capable of saving them from the fire, but he might not do it. In the same way that God was able to deliver them from exile, was fully capable of conquering Nebuchadnezzar's armies, but didn't. He allowed them to go into exile and suffer for 70 years. And they said, we know the same thing here. God can, fully capable of saving us from the furnace, and yet he might not. But does it matter? God's in control, and God is good, and we trust him. We know God is good. We, we trust him with everything. So, King, we're not talking to you about this. If God delivers us, awesome. If God doesn't deliver us, awesome anyways. We're, we're following him. He's told us we're not supposed to worship other gods. We're not going to worship other gods. We're following him. That's, that's where that resolve comes from. In their lives and I think in our lives as well. This understanding of God is good. God is in control. And we can trust him with everything. And I, and I can tell you that that resolve in them didn't just happen overnight. They've been, I can't remember exactly, but right now they've probably been in Babylon for about 10 years. Wrestling with 
Was God in control when we came into Babylon? How's God been working? They've watched God bless them in the midst of being in exile. They've been thinking about this for a long time. And as they've been thinking about it and meditating on it, it's been being driven right down into their heart that God is good, God is in control, and we trust Him. And as they wrestled with that more and more, their faith grew. That's what that trust is, this faith in God. Um, But their resolve also deepened and, and firmed up more and more and more until it led up to this big moment. And it's, I th- it's just important for all of us to be meditating on these things regularly. God is good. God is in control. And we can trust him with everything. And not just when things get bad or tough. Even if you're here and you're like, hey, my life's good. I mean, things are peachy. Things are all falling into place. Life's never been this good. I'm going to say that's the very time you really need to be spending meditating on this, getting, getting these three things to driven deep down in your heart because there is going to be a day coming where things will not be all peachy. It's always coming. We're either, uh, it's, it's, it's a very pessimistic thing to say, but we're either suffering or we're preparing for suffering. Which is true. We live in a fallen world, and so be preparing for those moments. Those are not in the moment of pain and suffering. is not the time for you to be trying to discern whether God's good and in control. Have that figured out beforehand. I was thinking this week about the, the first time when I realized that I fully believed this myself. Yeah, I grew up in a CRC church. Um, I didn't really believe anything that the CRC believed, actually, until after I um, graduated and started studying the Bible and had some teachers to come alongside me. So growing up, I didn't believe God was in control. I didn't believe any of that. Um, and as I read the scriptures and had somebody teach me, I began to see that. And I spent a lot of time wrestling through it, trying to really understand how God worked in my life and how God worked in the world and understanding how his goodness and his sovereignty is another word for him being in control, how they work together. And as I wrestled with it and meditated on it, it really drove deep in my heart. And, and then we found out that we lost our first baby at 15 weeks. And not our first, but it was our fourth you know, beginning of the second trimester, we lose, we lose a kid. Um, it was devastating for us. We, I remember just weeping and weeping. And, and uh, a few days later, we got our family together and my parents and Rachel's parents. And we had our own little funeral service for the child. And, and I remember driving home from the funeral service and uh, just a massive wave of peace came over me. I've never experienced it in my life. It was the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, the Spirit reminded me of these three truths. God is good. And God is in control. And I can trust Him with everything. And it was good. I, didn't, I, don't, I don't understand why that happened. I don't understand why we lost the child. I don't, I don't understand how God could use it for, his, for our good. It doesn't matter. I don't have to understand. I trust God. He is good. He's in control. I trust him. If I don't understand it, it doesn't matter. And, and I'm so thankful that the Spirit had prepped me for that moment ahead of time. Because that was not the time for me to start wrestling with, is God in control or is God good? He, he had it figured out and had it implanted in my heart in that moment. And so I'm encouraging you guys as well, start meditating on it today. Now, this afternoon, go home um, an easy way to do it is open up your catechism 
and go to the, the catechism answer we had today, and underneath it is a whole bunch of Bible verses. Read those Bible verses and spend time thinking about it. A few, another, the next Lord's Day, it talks about God's providence and how He's in control and provides for us, and a whole bunch of Bible verses. Read those Bible verses and meditate on it. And spend some time getting that to drive deep in your soul. Don't wait. Don't wait until everything's on the line. Until your job's on the line, your family's on the line, or your life's on the line. Do it now and ask God to strengthen your faith and to deepen your resolve. I can tell you, you won't, you won't ever regret doing that. For, for the three, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God grants them this miracle, right? I mean, they're, they're, the, fire, the, the furnace is heated up seven times hotter than, than normal, so hot that the people putting them in the furnace die. And they fall into the furnace. So rather than, this is the author's telling, rather than falling down in worship to the idol, they find themselves falling down into the furnace. And yet, they come walking out of that furnace. None of their clothes burned. Not, I mean, if, if you are, I'm a fairly hairy guy. Your hair singes easy. They walk out, hair's not even singed. If, you're, if you like camping, you know that if you're anywhere within a square mile of a campfire, you're going to smell like smoke. They walk out, they don't even smell like smoke. It's, this grand, it's such a great miracle that all of the robots and the puppets, he, give, he gives us that huge long list of people, their eyes are open to see God for who he truly is. And same with the king. Yet we know God doesn't always grant deliverance in the way we expect. We've heard this story as kids, and we, we know that God grants them this big miracle, but I was thinking this week of Jesus. He found himself in a fairly similar situation, betrayed, lied about, repeatedly um, told to deny who he was. He knew he was going to suffer and die and be crucified. And the night before, as he knows all of that going, he falls down on his face and says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. See, he he knows the same things, the same three things that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know. He knows that God is good, God is in control, and he can trust him. So he says, God, I know you're able to deliver me from this. I know you're powerful enough to do this. But I trust you, I, not, not as I will, but as you will. He submits himself to the Father. And in this instance, it was the Father's will that he would suffer and die on a cross and be buried. It was also the Father's will that on the third day he would rise again. And he would trample sin and death and conquer sin and death and that he would ascend into heaven where he's seated and he's ruling and reigning over all of creation right now. See, the Father delivered him in a miraculous, powerful way. Yet not in a way any of us would have expected. He had to go through the pain, through the suffering, through death in order to find his deliverance. And as he overcame death in his resurrection, we look at him and he says, I'm just the beginning Everyone who believes in me will, will have the same deliverance as him, where we will overcome death, be resurrected, and spend eternity with the Father in heaven. Everyone who believes in him has that deliverance coming someday. 
We have to go through pain and trial and suffering in this world. But if, through our faith, through what Christ has earned for us, that's on the horizon. A truly powerful deliverance that is so much more powerful than anything we could ever ask for in this world. Yet in the meantime, we still live in a fallen, broken world where there's pain and suffering. And God is still in control. God is still good. And we can trust him with every aspect of our lives. We may not understand what he's doing. We don't have to understand what he's doing. We can just trust him and live that way. And what that does is that that plants this resolve deep down in our heart so that as we live in this world, we don't sway to the left or the right. We follow Christ. We keep our eyes on him and we keep walking. If we find our jobs threatened because of our faith, we trust God. We follow him and we lose our job if he so wills. If we find our life on the line because of our faith, we trust God, we follow him, and we lose our lives if he so wills. Ooh, that's really small. We just have to listen closely. This is, this, I love how Calvin puts it. He says, We should gather from our present narrative the sufficiency of God's protection if he wishes to prolong our lives since we know our life to be precious to him. It's entirely in his power whether to snatch us from danger or to withdraw us to a better existence according to his pleasure. He says, whatever God chooses, there's deliverance either way. He can deliver us from the trial in this world or he can bring us to that eternal deliverance that he has waiting for us in heaven. And it's God's, God's will to do whichever one he wills. But deliverance waits on both sides of that equation. One an earthly deliverance and one a heavenly eternal deliverance. So God is good. God is in control. And we can trust him with everything. Let's pray. Lord, what assurance and comfort it is to know that you are ruling and reigning over this world and that you're our Father who cares for us. Lord, help us to rest in those truths. Help us not to take them for granted. Help us not to try to put ourselves in a position of God where we think we're in control, but to rest in you. Father, help us help drive those truths deep down in our hearts and souls and minds. For those of us who are in the midst of trial and suffering, Lord, firm those truths up and give us peace and resolve in those moments to follow you. Lord, we want to see you glorified in this world. We do trust you. Help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen.